and welcome to this episode of Science Fiction and the Fantastic Inside Out. Uh, today I speak with Mel Croft and John Yuskowskis, uh, who've written a book, Come Fly With Us, uh, which is about uh, NASA's pay- payload specialists on NASA missions uh, going up into space. So thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Mel, Mel Croft and John Yuskowskis, authors of Come Fly With Us, NASA's payload specialist program. Um, so thank you both for speaking with me. Thanks for So first, uh, tell me about the, uh, how did you get into um, studying and writing on this subject? And I guess, John, you can start. Well, Mel and I both kind of grew up, I think, following the space program. I certainly did, uh, watching all the uh, shuttle launches on on TV back then. And over the years, I saved a lot of uh, magazines and articles and books, and uh, we've read a lot of that. We're both members of a uh, website called Collect Space, Mm-hmm. And that's where we made the contacts where we initially got into writing uh, our earlier book, which was uh, Footprints in the Dust, mm-hmm. with uh, Albert Odyssey uh, series through the University of Nebraska Press with uh, Colin Burgess down in Australia. Mm-hmm. So we got very lucky to get involved in that project, and that just naturally led to, um, you know, what are we going to do next? And I think uh, Mel can give you a better idea how this project got started. Uh, Colin contacted me, asked me if I'd like to write a book on the payload specialist. It took me a couple days to look at it before I said, yeah. And then I told him, I don't want to do it alone. And so he said, why not uh, work with John Yuskowskis? And we'd work together and become friends. I said, fantastic. So uh, it worked out great. Okay. So uh, tell me then about uh, the subject matter of the book and how you uh, sort of lay it out. How do you um, address the topic? And I guess, Mel, you can start with that one. Yeah, uh, it's a good question because we want to start with how the payload specialist came to be. Mm-hmm. And so the first chapter is strictly the genesis of the payload specialist. And it was a very interesting story. So I attend a lot of uh, events with astronauts, and I knew some of the ones from the uh, early shuttle days. And I said, I'll just ask them how it started. Mm-hmm. And I did. And they looked at me and said, I don't know. We just flew them when they told us to fly them. And I said, uh-oh. But I, I found a lot of NASA memos mm-hmm. at University of Houston Clear Lake Archives, which just spelled it out uh, all through the 1970s into the 80s. So that's the, the subject matter itself of the payload specialist mm. uh, began with Space Lab, uh, or if, if you're familiar with that. Mm. Uh, would you like to expound on that, Space uh, Lab? Sure, sure. Well, uh, well before Apollo was over, uh, one of Von Brown from Marshall Space Flight Center was a student. He said, you know, we can't continue to survive as a a center that develops rockets and builds them. So he put together a group called Program Development of about 100 people and said, define our future. And what they eventually came up with was what became Space Lab. It, it had a, it was an evolution. It started out as a research and applications module, sorting modules, but eventually it got into uh, communication with ESA, or what the organizations that became ESA, European Space Agency. And that's how Space Lab came to be. And Marshall, uh, once the shuttle was approved in, I think, December 1972, uh, they, they were awarded, uh, control of Space Lab. And like any good organization, they took the ball and ran with it. Uh, which, what kind of experiments were we going to do in Space Lab? The planning of those experiments and selecting their own astronauts, which eventually became, uh, to be called payload specialists. And John, you may want to comment on the military guys, how they weren't started out as payload specialists. But that's how they flew. Yeah, the um, the Air Force had a. Uh, were, they kind of came in to save the program at one point. Uh, the Carter administration was going to cancel the space shuttle. They just canceled uh, the supersonic transport and uh, the uh, B1A program. And this was going to be the next uh, program on the chopping block. And it was the Air Force that came along, uh, Dr. Hans Mark and uh, General Jack Culpa, that uh, offered it to infuse some money into the program to keep it alive, and then uh, be able to fly military payloads on the shuttle as well. So all the classified uh, reconnaissance satellites. Uh, once that uh, decision was made to have the Air Force involvement, naturally they wanted to have their own people fly on these missions as well. So they selected a, uh, a group in top secret uh, uh, circumstances, to uh, a, a group of 13 engineers to uh, fly with those payloads and integrate them into the shuttle. So the, that's where it started on the uh, military side. 
But uh, even prior to that, um, going to the title of the book, Come Fly With Us, that's actually a quote from uh, Ken Mattingly. Mm -hmm. Back in 1982, they had just finished uh, the flight test program of the shuttle, and Mattingly and Hartsfield were doing a tour of the uh, of the country and, and went over to the Paris Air Show. And Mattingly would always end his speeches with that with that phrase, "Come fly with us." And I happened to be there uh, in in Baltimore, Maryland, when they came to town. And I was about 14 years old at the time, and I remembered him saying that. Mm -hmm. And as discussed titles that that uh, that sales pitch came to mind, and that's really what it was was a sales pitch because they were trying to sell the space shuttle mm -hmm. to all these potential customers to fly satellites and, and payloads and invite foreign countries to come in and uh, fly their pay payloads as well. Mm -hmm. So his uh, his phrase was kind of an invitation to the world to come fly on the space shuttle and uh, and, and really at that time also see that America was superior to uh, the Soviet Union. Those people who flew on those missions flew as payload specialists. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Um I guess for either of you, um, I, what are some of the um, issues you touch on in the book that you haven't mentioned yet? Like, you know, um, spe special things about the uh, about payload specialists that people would find really interesting. Let me go with, start out with that. Uh, what I found very interesting is that, um, I mean, these are astronauts, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody, they walk out of the checkout and operations building, they're dressed like astronauts, they're real astronauts. Uh, but when Marshall started their planning and decided they were going to select their own payload specialist to fly, uh, because they had, uh, they were current in their science. They were, you know, they come from the university. Uh, when Johnson Space Center found out about it, namely, uh, mainly Chris Kraft, uh, it was, well, hold on, Marshall. Uh, you know, we have experience planning science missions, Skylab, and I think we put some people on the moon too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we also have a lot of astronauts, so we really don't need your astronauts. So what I found, there was this, uh, I won't call it a battle, but definitely a back and forth between Marshall and Johnson about, uh, do we need payload specialists at all? And Johnson didn't think so. But what was interesting is that the, the back and forth was not so much between Marshall and Johnson. There were some, but it was mainly Johnson Space Center and headquarters with Chris Kraft trying to convince headquarters that we don't need their payload specialist. And that went on for half a decade. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had an opportunity to speak with uh, Skylab astronaut Joe Kerwin in about 2015, and we were talking about this issue. And we went through some of the things that happened. He said, but, you know, it just kind of worked itself out. Hmm. So eventually what, what transpired was that the payload crew doing all this experimentation in space uh, were comprised of two payload specialists and two mission specialists. From, uh, and obviously the mission specialists were from Johnson Space Center. So it worked out well. Hmm. Interesting. And, and John? Well, I think uh, one of the things I found most interesting in, in uh, talking with all these folks, we interviewed quite a number of them, was the different walks of life they all came from and the fact that they were they all found a seat on the space shuttle from so many different backgrounds and so many different paths they took through life to get there, and many of them weren't even really preparing for that. Uh, they, some of them had a dream to do that in the past. Some of them had applied to be astronauts themselves and had been turned down on multiple occasions in, in one case that I know of. Uh, but they kept finding a different route to get there, and they had that tenacity to, to, to find a different path. So people like Charlie Walker uh, went to McDonnell Douglas and got involved with a program, uh, an experiment called electrophoresis that, that uh, had a lot of promise early in the, in the space shuttle days, and he flew with that payload three times. Uh, Bob, folks like uh, Bob Senker, who was a RCA engineer, um, he had applied twice and, and gotten turned down. And then he amazingly got a phone call from his boss one day mm -hmm. and said, hey, remember that payload specialist uh, position we were talking about? How would you like to go fly on the space shuttle? Mm -hmm. So it's just amazing how all the different ways these uh, these folks found their uh, their seat in, on the shuttle. And then we can talk a little bit later about their different reactions to doing that both during the flight and uh, and later on in life. I was actually curious, in the book, do you touch on STS-51L, Lima? Yeah, there's, uh, it, it was a, it was a tough chapter to write. It had to be included. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't, uh, bypass that. But, uh, an interesting thing is we, we did a lot of this research and writing in, uh, the 2015, 2016 timeframe. And that happened to be the 30th anniversary of the, uh, the Challenger accident. Mm -hmm. So rather than, um, and we took a different approach to that chapter. We, we 
I tried to tell that story from the perspective of some of the folks we had interviewed. Where were they when it happened? What was their reaction to it? What are their opinions to it 30 years later? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we did a, a, a pretty good job without getting too much into all the technicalities. The, uh, the story does concentrate on the people involved, Greg Jarvis and Krista McAuliffe, how they came to find their seats on the shuttle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, it doesn't, um, everybody's read about the explosion and, and the reasons behind it. Mm-hmm. We didn't get too much into that. We tried to focus on the individuals. And I think uh, telling it from the perspective of the other folks that, that got to fly was, uh, was a good way to do it. Um, an interesting side story to that is that um, uh, Congressman Bill Nelson flew on uh, the flight just prior. And there was a time where he was actually assigned to 51L. So he was going to fly on 51L with Krista McAuliffe. And he was exchanged with uh, uh, Greg Jarvis, who was going to fly on the mission prior with Bob Sanker. Hmm. And that decision was uh, made, as, as Sanker told us, uh, really to split up the two non-astronauts and, and the two uh, space industry people. So you had two satellite engineers on... Uh, 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 61C, the mission prior, and you had two non-space people, Kristen McAuliffe and uh, Bill Nelson on the, on the subsequent flight on Challenger, mm-hmm. and they decided to, to mix up those two pairs of payload specialists so you could have somebody kind of leading the way and showing the other one the ropes. Mm-hmm. So kind of an unfortunate uh, turn of events that, that led to Greg Jarvis being on that mission. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like he was bumped for the politician. He wasn't, that wasn't the case. He had, he'd been removed previously from another flight for Jake Garn, but um, that didn't happen in the case of uh, 51L. So, um, so you did mention you wanted to talk about the reactions um, some of these people had when selected. I guess, uh, Mel, you can start on this one. Uh, or are you the wrong, should I ask John about that? No, no, no. <laughs> no, I, I remember very well because uh, Jake Garn comes to mind. Um, he was a savvy politician, uh, senator from Utah, and, you know, he pretty much told NASA he was, well, head of the appropriations committee that was handling the money. So he kept telling NASA, I want to fly. And, and it became a, a litany. He had people, uh, running interference for him. Uh, every time somebody came to Washington, he would go and say, yeah, I want to fly. I want to fly. Other people would tell the administrator, Jake Garn wants to f- fly. And, uh, I don't know if he ever really expected it to happen, but I remember when, uh, he was finally called and told, well, was it told? I think he was told in person. Uh, he said, uh, here's this politician that can stand up and, and pontificate with anyone. And as soon as he's told, he was speechless. His jaw dropped. It was, really? <laughs> That's how I would react. Yeah, yeah. John? Yeah, I think they all reacted uh, how any of us would if you uh, won that uh, that t- ticket to Disney World, as yeah. it were. Uh, Sinker comes to mind as well because he got that phone call and his boss wasn't exactly up front with him. He just said, okay, I'll get back to you. So Sinker hung, hung up the phone and he's, and he's sitting there going, I can't work anymore. What am I supposed to do? You know, so he turned around and marched up to the boss's office and walked in and said, well, you know, what's going on here? What do I have to do? And he goes, well, just relax. We haven't even chosen your backup yet. And he was just incredulous. He said, my backup? You know, I'm flying? He goes, yeah, you're flying. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, it's just uh, really interesting the different ways uh, that they found out about it and, and even learned about the opportunity to begin with. Um, one of the things we mentioned in the book, too, is a, um, a Greg Jarvis came across just a flyer that was uh, thumbtacked up to a bulletin board, mm-hmm. and it said, wanted payload specialists to fly on uh, on the space shuttle. <laughs> so um, how would, you know, can we even relate today to, to a situation like that where you're walking down the hall at work and you find a a flyer that sounds like a cruise advertisement that says, "Hey, how'd you like to go to space?" And that's how he found out that there was a chance to do it. So it was—it's all—it was an amazing time, and I think we've all kind of—it's. Um, it, we hope that the readers get that from the book. Is like, wow, do you remember back when all these things were possible mm-hmm. with the space shuttle? And uh, it all—it all ended with the uh, Challenger, of course. But uh, those were really heady days, and and it was a really exciting time where. where um, it was almost to the point where they were trying to convince the American public that we could, any of us could go. Mm-hmm. Was there? A, uh, yeah, throw, go, can I throw one more in? Sure thing. Uh, Byron Lichtenberg, who flew on uh, STS uh, nine, Space Lab one, he was not selected as an astronaut. I believe twice, to- two times, and uh, then he went back to MIT and got involved in a project there that was working on space adaptation sickness, you know, the space sickness mm-hmm. or space adaptation syndrome. 
And uh, he got involved in that and was selected as a payload specialist. And that ruffled the feathers of some of the other mission specialists who were selected in that group eight of astronauts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lichtenberg flies before them. And, and they weren't really happy about it. Kathy Sullivan uh, was very upfront about it. Here, I, I get selected the right way, and here this guy goes and flies before me. Mm-hmm. So, Well, so I'm curious, were they under added pressure to do sort of to prove themselves um, worthy? I don't think, um, I think there was, people were looking over their shoulder a lot, uh, but once they're assigned to a crew, it seems like all the crews really took very good care of them. They all, they all got together as a crew and and bonded as a crew. Hmm. Um, All of the, um, the uh, controversy that you read about in the book and the and the and the, um, the, the conversations back and forth about is this a good idea or not? None of that happened with the actual people involved in flying. They they got with their crews and they were treated as an equal from day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know there were a few uh, uh, confrontations here and there, but that all happened in the office. That never happened as part of training, and it never happened during any of the missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody got along really well. Okay. When Charlie when Charlie Walker first got introduced to his crew and started working with him, the commander Hank Hartsville told him he had to cook all the meals. He was pulling his leg, but Charlie didn't know it. He said, "Not a problem. I'll do that." <laughs> um, so you mentioned I saw your list of questions. Um, sorry, which the the present? Actually, let me step back a second. Um, as far as physical requirements, did they um, did they have to train? You know, keep keep in shape. On their own personal time, you know, how, how did they handle that part? Well, John, think, they had, uh, as a class three medical, you're, you're the aviator. Talk. Yeah, third class medical. Uh, the way one of them put it to us was, uh, as long as you, uh, they could hold a mirror to your nose and it's, they saw fog on it, you were good to go. <laughs> huh. uh, and they would joke about things like, uh, you know, most of your training consists of uh, what not to touch in the orbiter when you when you get up there. Huh. But uh, different ones took a different approach to it. Some of them weren't necessarily um, in great physical shape, and other ones, like Bill Nelson, took it upon himself to uh, prepare himself as as much as he could, so, should the opportunity ever arise. Mm-hmm. And he, he went up in uh, in uh, F-15s and F-16s and, and pulled Gs in those to try and uh, build up a, a G tolerance and get some experience and fight on his own. And mm-hmm. then he, he jogged like mad, I believe. And mm-hmm. uh, But other ones didn't do any of that kind of any of that kind of thing. They each uh, found their own way to do it. Hmm. I think the, uh, the Air Force guys were a, were a different group um, and, and approached that differently, too. Of the um, all the manned spaceflight engineers selected, only uh, two of them were, were rated pilots. Hmm. So they were the only ones that were subject to a, uh, a medical previous to that. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, because of the delay in shuttle and the delay in launching Space Lab, the uh, ESA asked were well, some of them were, were invited over to do mission specialist training in that interim time frame, uh, Vubu Ockels and Claude Nicoye. Uh, but they passed the NASA physical. Ulf Marable, who actually flew on SCS-9, couldn't pass the American the mission specialist physical, so he could not go and participate in the training. But he could still fly as a payload specialist. Hmm. So what about um, the current state of... Uh payload specialists, and, and I me- you mentioned in your list of possible questions, um, f- commercial flight. You know, how, how is that all integrated? Well, right now, um, this year we should see the flights of uh, four commercial space flight providers, two of those being suborbital with Virgin Galactic mm-hmm. and uh, Blue Origin, and then two of those being orbital with SpaceX and, uh, and the Boeing company. Now, now, Boeing and SpaceX are going to be tied up for a long time doing um, uh, crew transfers up to the International Space Station. They have a contract with NASA. But I think in the future they would be doing orbital flights for uh, paying passengers. And by paying passengers, that could be a university or, or a corporation that just leases out the, the spacecraft for uh, orbital experiments and they take their own people along. So they, they likely won't call them payload specialists, but uh, they, they'll essentially be doing the same function that the guys were back in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin have both uh, flown NASA payloads already uh, unmanned, but I think eventually those payloads are going to be tended by people, just like you see now flying on the uh, the Sophia 747 
and Casey, uh, I'm sorry, these days I use a 727 for zero gravity payloads. Hmm. All those kind of researchers that do that, that stuff today under uh, university grants or through uh, NASA programs, they'll be doing that on suborbital spaceflight, and uh, it, it, uh, it'll really take off here soon. And I hope to see those uh, first flights this year. Mel, anything to add to that? Uh, no, I think John put it well. Okay. Um, well, I, I, well, I will say that I think if we go forward, um, you're going to see a, a wide variety of people flying who could who would be similar to a payload specialist. Uh, and uh, at one part of the time of the book, I actually compared it to Star Trek. There are lots of payload specialists on the USS Enterprise. Hmm. Uh, they could not, have, you know, fix a dilithium crystals or fire a phaser. They had basic training. <laughs> they did something else. So they were payload specialists. Huh. Interesting point. Um, so I'm trying to get an understanding of, of how they operated when they were in space. I guess they weren't doing any space spacewalks or anything. Were they just in the bay doing doing their work, or how did that how did that go? Well, for Space Lab, uh, on those missions, that Space Lab was comprised of a pressurized module, but it could be flown with just a, a series of pallets in the payload bay without the pressurized module. Hmm. So when they had the, the pressurized module. Uh, there were four payload crew persons, two payload specialists, and two mission specialists. So they were 12 hours on, 12 hours off. So for one 12-hour period, a payload special and a mission specialist were in the space lab module, and you didn't see them up in the uh, orbiter. They were busy doing their experiments, and the other crew would persons were sleeping at that time, or the payload crew, and then they would swap. Um, I do recall that uh, pilot Brewster Shaw told me that he and John Young on SCA S9 would occasionally venture down into Space Lab where the scientists were working, and they would get down there, and it was basically, don't touch that, would you get out of the way? <laughs> so, but they, on Space Lab, they stayed pretty busy. Hmm. Um, interestingly enough, on one of the flights, uh, when we flew the Saudi Prince, uh, he flew because uh, we were deploying a, a Saudi Arabian satellite to bring the uh, Muslim world together hmm. for communications, and turns out they he didn't plan enough work for him. So he would get his experiments done, taking pictures mostly. And then he had nothing to do, and he became bored. <laughs> and he wasn't really happy that he was a little bit critical afterwards. NASA should have put together more work in here for me. I don't think I would have gotten bored. But. Yeah, and that was an interesting uh, aspect that we found, too, is that uh, even though a lot of these uh, folks were chosen, to, as they were, they were signed on as part of uh, what they called launch services associated with the payload. Hmm. So if your company or your country would sign up to fly your satellite, you got to send somebody with it. Uh. And that was a big competitive advantage over, like, the Aryan Corporation. You couldn't fly your guy with the satellite, and you couldn't bring it back if something went wrong either. Mm -hmm. So another big sales pitch for the shuttle. But uh, once in orbit, the uh, the satellite deployment itself was actually the responsibility of the mission specialist from NASA. So the payload specialist that was there because of the satellite in the back had no direct responsibility for the payload. Unless something went wrong, and he could possibly help troubleshoot it. So uh, as a result of that, they had to find a lot of secondary payloads and experiments for them to do. They got uh, kind of relegated to doing a lot of medical tests in the, in the mid-deck. And uh, in the case of uh, Bob Sinker, he had an uh, infrared camera that he was testing that used a um, what they call a staring focal plane, which is basically what you find in every digital camera today on the market. But back in 1985, it was brand new technology. So he was primarily responsible for that. Hmm. Um, another interesting payload specialist that flew, though, was an oceanographer, Paul Scully Power. He was from Australia originally, and he'd been here with the U.S. Navy for a number of years. Hmm. And he actually advised uh, the uh, NASA astronauts on how to take orbital photography of uh, uh, eddy currents and, and uh, large-scale uh, features of the oceans. Hmm. So NASA had long talked about flying an oceanographer, and Paul Scully Power and Bob Stevenson were both selected to do that, and uh, ultimately only only Paul flew. But uh, he had he spent as much time as he could in the flight deck, upside down, up by the uh, the uh, flight deck windows. So the uh, the wraparound windows in the front were kind of like a gondola to him. He he called it the uh, gondola mode. Hmm. So he would float upside down and and, and see what was coming, and know what he was going to get to photograph and then slide over to the other side and be able to take a picture of what he was aiming for. Huh. So he, he had a he was a unique uh, a unique guy and he had a unique uh, opportunity on the shuttle that most people didn't get. Um I want to turn to oh how many uh, total number of payload specialists were there? Four 
the scope of our book is primarily up through the Challenger accident. And John, there were 22 who flew during that time, I believe. 22, 22 yeah. Including Chris McAuliffe and Greg Jarvis. Hmm. Uh, I counted up the total number one point, and I can't give the exact number, somewhere between 50 or 60, I believe, who ultimately flew okay. as payload specialists. And did each one have a backup, or were these uh, also including backups? Uh, no, those were the ones who actually flew, and most of them did have backups, yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, okay. What? Uh, so what resources did you use for your research? I, I assume plenty of interviews, but uh, if you can address anything else you, you used... Well, when I found the archives at the University of Houston at Clear Lake, I, I a sigh of relief because I didn't know how I was going to tell the story of how the payload specials began, and there in front of me in hundreds of memos, it was just laid right out in front of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, letters from uh, Memos from Christopher Kraft up to headquarters. Uh, I could read off a whole list of names that I'm sure you'd recognize uh, and their input into the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of information on the Internet obviously, uh, and books. And then the favorite part of it was uh, talking with the uh, astronauts. And, and fortunately, I had the opportunity to not only interview some of the payload specialists and backups, but to talk to some of the crew persons that they flew with, mm-hmm. that was, which was just as insightful uh, to get their perspective on the program. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I'll have to, like John said earlier, uh, once the payload specialists were assigned, the professionalism, but the NASA astronauts came through. They wanted their mission to be successful, and that included the payload specialists being 100% successful. Mm-hmm. So very impressed with those NASA astronauts. And John? Well, like I said earlier, I, I had a stack of magazines from when I was a kid, and there was some really uh, fine reporting done back in those days before the Internet, uh, Countdown Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Space World Magazine, publications like that. I saved them for years, wondered what I was ever going to do with them. Uh, went through a move and, and still kept them. And then one day this project came along and I, I had some validation for keeping them all those years. So that was a good start. The interviews were great, um, uh, some some more than others. Some of these guys were just so cooperative. Um, they wanted to, uh, in, in several cases, they wanted to see the chapter when it was completed and make their own edits. So they wanted to make sure the story was right too. Mm-hmm. And I told them it was their story. Uh, a lot of the... the sections that I write, it's mainly based on interviews. It has a lot of quotes, and they wanted to make sure that was right, and I had no problem with that. That's ensured the accuracy for me. Uh, the Air Force guys in particular, uh, I drew the what we thought was the short straw being the pilot of the, the pilot and the scientist uh, pair here. Uh, I got the Air Force program, and we didn't think those guys were going to talk to us. I didn't think I had any chance at all of, of hearing from them, being that a lot of the work that they did is still classified. Hmm. But uh, once I got a hold of the first one, it kind of snowballed from there. He called somebody else. He yeah. called somebody else. And I got a reputation as the guy who was writing the book. Ah. <laughs> so uh, uh, it, it got to a point I had to cut it off. I couldn't take any more information. Mel, uh, no, no, I'm sure, remembers my first cut at the Air Just the uh, uh, the chapter on 51C, the first classified mission, was 25,000 words. And the book was limited to 120,000 words. So <laughs> we, had to, we had to cut a significant portion of that. So they, they were all just wonderful guys to work with, great great patriots, real gentlemen. And um, they have a uh, alumni group out at uh, Los Angeles um, Air Force Base out there called the uh, the uh, Special Projects Alumni Association. They were part of, um, in uh, Air Force parlance, it's uh, the uh, Secretary of the Air Force Special Projects is the, the name of their uh, group out there. So uh, they, that, that uh, alumni association was a big help, too. So considering all that, I know that, you know, you have limits as far as how large the book can be. I'm sure you have a lot of good historical or pretty awesome historical information that you couldn't use. You know, what, what happens with that? Where do these interviews go? Where does that extra stuff end up? Good question. <laughs> we, we thought about writing a follow-up book, and we could just never come up with something that we could we thought would be approved. And then we came up with another idea and it kind of went in a different direction that's still kind of secret, I guess. But, mm, okay. um, but certainly we're going to preserve it, and uh, I hope we can still be champions. Interestingly enough, I just I was invited to uh, the Marshall Space – well, not to Marshall, to the Huntsville Rocket Space Center by uh, 
one of the Space Lab scientists that I interviewed for the book, uh, Rick Chappell, mm-hmm. who was at the beginning of Space Lab and was a mission scientist on Space Lab 1. And our, although John mentioned some of the later Space Lab flights after Challenger accident, we really don't have time to get it, didn't have time to get into in detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out that uh, at, at Huntsville, Valerie Neal from the Smithsonian, she's a historian, she was there. And they're kind of tossed around the idea now of, well, maybe we should tell them the story of those other missions at a separate book. So hold on. There may be something that, that pans out there. I don't know yet. Hmm. Did either of you get a chance to um, interact with any of the, the the physical items associated with this history, you know, with the um, just just anything that you were able to, to just see close up or hold or anything like that? Sure. We went down to uh – I've been to the Kennedy Space Center several times, actually, to uh, initiate some contact with the payload specialists we wanted to talk to. And while you're there, of course, you, the Space Shuttle Atlantis is on display. But uh, we, we did a dedicated research trip uh, to uh, the Uvarhazi Center at uh, Dulles, the Smithsonian Annex there. Mm-hmm. Space Shuttle Discoveries there, um, the, the first Space Lab module that they flew in Space Lab 1 and a, and a number of other missions is there. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, around the back of that uh, display, it's not something a lot of people really notice, but there's a lot of Space Lab gear behind there, including the uh, instrument pointing system that was used on Space Lab 2 for the, the solar uh, physics and the astronomy uh, studies that they did on that mission. So it doesn't look like a whole lot. Yeah. To us, it was a gold mine to go there and see that uh, equipment firsthand. And uh, if you go to our uh, Twitter page, and we, we've shared that link with you, you can see some pictures of us there. Uh, during the research trip. And that's also, you, you mentioned before, where does, where does the other information go that we didn't get to use? There's a lot of um, material on there on the, on the Twitter page that we're, we're calling the cutting room floor. Mm. So some of the quotes and some of the stories we weren't able to fit into the book we're trying to share on there as well. Okay. And, and one outcome of me going to Marshall, uh, and I'm going to take credit for this even though I probably don't deserve it, uh, Harry Kraft, who was a mission manager for Space Lab 1, I met him. He showed me around the Space and Rocket Center in a all Apollo stuff mainly or some Skylab and Valerie Neal was there and during our conversation I kept asking Harry where's the Space Lab stuff he goes well we don't have any and uh, the conversation kept going on he asked Valerie how come we don't have any here she says well you should so they developed a conversation whereby maybe uh, Uberhazi will loan them some of the Space Lab hardware for the uh, Huntsville Museum we'll see what happens interesting so and for so this is for each of you um, what part of the research was most enjoyable um, I guess, John, you can start. Uh, well, certainly talking to the guys, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things that they, that they spoke with us about they hadn't thought about in a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think they appreciated uh, the opportunity to do that. And uh, they got to think of some things they hadn't thought of in a long time, and I think it was a good experience for them. Maybe somewhat surprising that somebody was interested in the story. Uh, and how we were telling it, and some of the feedback we've gotten from them. It, it means the world to us to hear back from these guys. We sent them all copies of the book, mm-hmm. and to hear the complimentary uh, remarks back from them, just, uh, I know Mel's kind of beside himself at times getting to talk to, with these guys that uh, kind of grew up watching as they as they did their space flights. Yeah. That's, a, that's an easy question to answer. I have two, two responses. One, uh, an example of what was fun. And doing the research for Space Lab 1, I found a memo where for the single, there was a, a an ESA payload specialist, from Air Bowl, and there was one American slot for a payload specialist. And they had the list narrowed down to 18 candidates. And on that list was Dr. William Thornton, who was a NASA um, scientist astronaut chosen way back when, and also a mission specialist. So I started thinking, did he submit his name to be a payload specialist, or did Johnson submitted it. Did Marshall ask for his name to be submitted? So I sent him an email. And a couple days later, I got a response. He said, you know, it's a good question, but I'm working on my own project. I'm busy. I just don't have time, so I apologize. Okay. I appreciate the the response. 30 minutes later, I get another email email from him. He says, you know, Mel? Melvin, he called me. He said, that that is such an insightful question. I don't know how you came up with it, but if you'll call me, I'll give you an answer. (laughs) So that was just classic. Uh, The other is that at the University of Houston, finding all these memos, most literally, I'd send them ahead of time. They have a database, what I wanted, and they'd have four or five carts lined up, bringing them out. But when I ran into comments of, on uh, NASA memos, handwritten comments by astronauts like John Young and Ken Mattingly, and some of them were hilarious. Uh, I, was, I was the only person in the room, and there were two 
offices with uh, employees, and I was just jumping up and down and talking to myself, and I know they were looking at me like I was an idiot. But this stuff was just classic. Hmm. So that's where I had the fun. So now you mentioned, um, both of you mentioned stuff that you found that was interesting. Uh, what did each of you find that was most surprising in your research? Um, John? Um, most surprising? Uh, I think the, uh, the reactions of each one of them to, to see in the earth, uh, they, they were they were all very different. Uh, I've mentioned before that uh, most of the astronauts go up and and they uh, they speak about how fragile the Earth looks and how thin the atmosphere looks, and that's a valid observation. I think most people come back and explain it the same way. Uh, Bob Sanker spent the whole last night in orbit just uh, watching the world go by at the overhead windows instead of sleeping. So he spent eight hours or so, I think, watching the uh, watching all phases of the of the Earth going by with moonlight and sunlight and thunderstorms, sunrises and sunsets. So he had a hmm. he had a very insightful uh description of that because he was he was um upset that he wasn't gonna be able to share that with his family. Most places he had been in life he could say, Oh my son would like this or my wife would like this but he didn't he knew he was he was someplace where he was never going to be able to take them. Yeah. So that's uh that was an interesting take on it. And then uh in contrast to that, Bill Pales, one of the Air Force uh manned spaceflight engineers he looked down at the Earth as being very rugged and very uh, vibrant and not fragile at all, mm-hmm. and he's and it was a kind of surprising to hear that uh, that contrast between the two views. That uh, he, he's in fact he's probably the only astronaut I've ever talked to that expressed it that way. That he he didn't have any concerns for um, the Earth being fragile at all, mm-hmm. and uh, it, not that he not that he said you shouldn't take care of it, right. and all the environmental concerns are, are valid, but uh, he just he didn't see it being uh, that fragile. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that surprised me the most. Yep. Mel? I, I think the thing that stands out to me is the dedication of, of these people and the professionalism. Uh, the example is Charlie Walker on STS-41D, the first flight where uh, Paleo Specialist flew with that electrophoresis or Cephas, they call the equipment. Uh, its equipment was down uh, in the in the mid down below, not up where the windows were. And uh, the, his crew, uh, fellow crew person said, you know, he hardly ever came up to look out the window. He was down there the whole time babysitting that Cephas device. We had to force him to get upstairs and look out the window. <laughs> I mean, it probably would be the opposite for me. Um, and, and the other thing along those lines is the people connection. Um, some of the comments made by the NASA astronauts, you would have thought, boy, they hate this payload specialist concept. And maybe they did, but they didn't dislike the people. John Young, who was very much, uh, I won't say against it, but kind of negative some of the planning. Turns out he became very good friends with the ESA payload specialist Ulf Maribel for life. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's that people connection. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll start with you, Mel, with this question. Um, what question or, or issue was the most difficult to come to a conclusion on or maybe is still an open question for you that you wish you had um, been able to, to figure out or solve? That's an easy one. I set a goal before uh, the writing the book to uh, answer a, a question about a payload specialist who flew well not wanting to get the mission about a payload specialist that had some problems in space mm-hmm. to the point that the commander became so concerned that he put a padlock on the hatch of the site of the orbiter to make sure he didn't open it up he was that mentally depressed mm-hmm. I want to know the real story the story that I was given didn't make sense where, where did the commander get a lock from they just don't carry extra equipment on the shuttle Right. so I found two pieces of information that I think settled the issue as much as need be. Uh, one, I found uh, some what's called transcript profiles that is an attempt to uh, transcribe all the ground to uh, space communications in the space lab module. Mm-hmm. And I had read accounts where, well, let me back up. The uh, They were talking about Dr. Taylor Wang on SCS-51B. Um, his drop dynamics module, when he went to turn it on, he spent five Five years working on this on the ground, got into space and turned it on. It didn't work. And NASA told him, we don't want you to try to fix it because it's very unlikely. Well, he became very depressed, and he admitted that after the mission. Um, but I was told he spent three or four days after they finally allowed him to try to repair it. He spent three or four days repairing it. Well, that's not the case because I've got the exact timeline. The whole episode lasted for just a little over a day, and 
there were some concerns by those on the ground with the, based on the comments I got, such as prayers for Wang and things like that. So something happened up there. Mm-hmm. But I talked to Fred Gregory, who was the pilot on that mission. And Greg, uh, Fred's comment to me was, well, first of all, there was no lock. We, I'm sorry, there's, I don't know who keeps, there was no lock, uh, but the commander did secure the hatch with duct tape. But Fred iterated timing into me. He felt the commander Overmeyer way overreacted. Wayne was a great guy. He worked hard and he finally got his equipment working and persevered. So hmm. I don't think it was nearly as big an issue there as people made it out to be. Hmm. Interesting. And, and John? Well, one of the uh, overriding uh, uh, topics we wanted to cover throughout the book was uh, the subject of risk. Hmm. We uh, we asked each one of the guys who flew about their perception of the risk at the time versus their, their uh, perception now. And I think they were all aware of it. Uh, none of them were specifically told about the uh, problems with the solid rocket boosters, uh, but none of the NASA guys were either. So at that time, nobody really had any concern that the... Um, the problem, the issue hadn't really percolated up to the level of the astronaut office, so not too many of them were aware there was even an issue. But each one of them uh, took their own approach to uh, evaluating the risk, and uh, you know they were used to some of the people who were already in the space business were used to doing risk assessments for equipment. But then came the day where they had to walk out on the swing arm at 195 foot level and go out to the, uh, the orbiter hatch and they had to say to themselves, wow, now it's my hide on the line, so am I up to doing this? And I think most of them had made that decision long before they either, ever got to that spot, but there were certainly some moments of reflection when they got out there and, and looked down at this rocket that was, you know, steaming off uh, liquid hydrogen and oxygen and it was creaking and moaning and making all kinds of noises. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a different vehicle than it is when you just go out and tour the launch pad or something like that. But uh, they each had their own way of uh, addressing that and dealing with it. Um, and But you do hear when you talk to the guys, both the professional uh, astronauts and the payload specialists, that uh, there's a, a little bit of uh, maybe some, some anger about what they weren't told. So uh, it, that's still there, and it's still painful for a lot of them. And, uh, and some of them can just tell you exactly without without mincing any words, exactly what they thought about it. Mm-hmm. And other ones are, are more reserved. But, uh, yeah, risk was a, was a big thing. The military folks uh, took it, uh, they were more adept to that. And I think most of the, the manned spaceflight engineers who didn't get to fly uh, didn't agree with the uh, rationale for ending their program. Mm-hmm. And that was the risk was too high. And most of them had signed up, as they put it to me, that with the understanding that they were going to eventually one day put their lives on the line for their country. Mm-hmm. And they never got the opportunity to do that. So when the higher-ups came and said, you're not you're not flying in space because it's too risky, they didn't really accept that too well. Yeah, I get that. Um, so, and either of you can can answer this one first. Um, what, what did you discover that had the most emotional impact on you, either negative or, or positive? Um, I, I think I would uh, share the story from the uh, Dutchman Vubo Ackles. Uh The man was just truly touched by flying into space and it impacted him for the rest of his life. And one story that I recall is that at the end of the mission, he and his fellow payload specialist and ESA astronaut uh, Ernst Messerschmidt were back watching the payload doors close. It was a, described as a very a uh, beautiful moment, and Vubo said, I'm going to go get my camera and take some pictures, and Ernst grabbed you by the hand and said, no, don't. Just stand here and enjoy this moment. And I've, afterwards, Vubo said, I sure am glad he had me do that, because that was a special time. Hmm. John? Well, the, uh, the Challenger uh, topic was especially difficult to deal with, and there was a lot of emotion in talking to the guys about that. Um, even Even people who weren't astronauts and uh, folks that were just involved in the management side that we spoke to. Uh, still some raw emotion there. But uh, I think emotion-wise, one of the uh, one of the best uh, quotes I got for the book actually turned into a title of one of the chapters from Gary Payton. One of the best descriptions I've ever heard of going uphill on a, on a space shuttle. He said, you get to about 10,000 feet and you uh, go Mach 1 going straight up. And it, as you do that, the, aer- the uh, airplane and the, and the rocket that it's riding on are, are vibrating so violently. He said he felt like he was going supersonic in a paper airplane. <laughs> I think that's the best description I've ever heard of uh, riding that, that space shuttle. It's, 
it's not just vibration from the rockets. It's actually the, uh, the what he called the vibroacoustical hmm. uh, environment around the orbiter. So the sound itself is actually shaking the vehicle, not just the the thrust of the rocket. So he, he was very uh, very concise in, in describing what that was like. But then he, then he threw out this quote, and I was like, well, that's going to be the title of that chapter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How how did the DOD affect uh, shuttle design? Um, are you talking about the physical configuration, or you were talking about the missions that you had mentioned before? Well, in a lot of ways, uh, when the Air Force came to the Carter administration and essentially built out the shuttle program in those early days, uh, their requirements to fly the DoD payloads are really what dictated the shape and the size of the orbiter that we see today. Hmm. The uh, 60 by, by 15 foot payload bay was sized to fit not only the KH-9, the hexagon spy satellite into which is declassified now, but it was actually designed to fly even larger payloads that are still classified today. Mm. So that uh, payload bay, once that size was determined, then they had a, an additional requirement to fly into polar orbits out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. So the problem with that is that if you launch into a polar orbit going southbound out of, off of California, uh, in order to do an abort to come back around and land at the runway, the runway is moved about 850, 900 miles off to the east by the time you come back around. Mm-hmm. So you can be able to re-enter and then make a turn uh, using those big delta wings back to the west coast to be able to land. And that's what um, created the need for the for those large delta wings on the shuttle that you see today. Mm-hmm. The original concepts were more like light lifting body designs, and those, uh, those delta wings came from the Air Force requirement for the polar um, uh, orbiting missions. But the... Uh, the engineers that were selected, that first group of 13, fascinating bunch of guys, and they were just they were thrown into uh, a situation where the Air Force and NASA and, and even some people within the program offices of the Air Force that were developing the satellites, a lot of them didn't want anything to do with the shuttle. So there was a lot of controversy going on back then, a lot of arguments, and they were just thrown into it and said, go do what you got to do. Go integrate these satellites into this shuttle payload bay and let us know how it goes. They weren't given a whole lot of guidance. So a lot of things like um, uh, hold down clamps and and and, uh, the vibrational environment around the shuttle, they had developed developed, uh, sensor packages to measure that on some of the early flights. Uh, So their their contributions to the program early on uh, really are are the unsung part of uh, of the shuttle program, I think. Uh, the manned spaceflight engineers did a lot of uh, time training as uh, spacewalkers in the water tanks down at uh, Marshall mm-hmm. before they built the facility down to Houston. So we've got a, a, a photo or two in the book of uh, the Air Force guys in old Apollo suits doing that underwater training. Well, they weren't training to do actual spacewalks. That would be the, the area of expertise for the NASA folks. But uh, they were doing uh, experimental work as, as far as what could be built in, in zero gravity, what kind of uh, components could be changed out on satellites? Could you refuel a satellite in orbit uh, to extend its life longer? So they were doing all that early experimental work that led to successes like the Solar Max recovery and uh, repair and later satellite retrieval and repair missions. And uh, uh, I don't think they ever got a lot of credit for that. And we hope the, the book brings that to light a little bit. Hmm. And... Um how did the how how did these individuals handle being called astronauts for the rest of their their lives or or still you know? Yeah, I think they all handle it their own way. Uh, some of them really don't get out in the limelight much. Uh, other ones uh, kind of openly uh, embrace it, and they'll they'll do public appearances and they'll throw on the old blue flight suit every now and then and and go out and sign autographs. And uh, to most of the kids that they see down there at like Kennedy Space Center or Houston, they don't. They don't mind the difference, and they don't feel the need to uh, explain the difference. Uh, other ones have kind of uh, shunned it. Uh, I know Bill Pales from the, one of the Air Force guys. He always re- referred to himself as an Air Force astronaut. He, is, he says in, when he's out in public, he doesn't say I'm a NASA astronaut. I wasn't a, a shuttle pilot or anything. He says I was an Air Force astronaut, and that to him sets sets him apart from the rest. So they all, they all handle it their own way, and... Uh, there's not a lot of fame that comes with it. It's kind of like they're famous for brief periods of time when they do a public appearance, but as soon as they take off the jacket or the flight suit, then they're just another businessman or lawyer in the hotel bar. Hmm. Yeah. I'll share an observation from some of the events I have attended with lots of astronauts there, and Charlie Walker attending 
Uh, of course, Charlie flew three times. Uh, but when you see Charlie interacting with the other, other astronauts, including shuttle and Apollo air astronauts, it's pats on the back, hugs, not just regular handshakes, big handshakes. And you look, this guy's an astronaut. You know, he's been accepted. But when I wrote the chapter on 41D, his first mission, uh, and Charlie reviewed it for me, I uh, wrote in there that Charlie became a, uh, an integral part of the astronaut course. He said, oh, you can't say that. He made me take that part out. He said, no, that I'm not. So the observation is that he is, but he didn't, still didn't feel that he uh, deserved that. So you touched on, both of you have touched on this, but um, what do you hope uh, the book will ultimately do? And John, you can... Well, I, I think it just it sheds light on a, uh, a previously unknown uh, aspect of the space shuttle program. Uh, I know everybody can look down the list of crew members and say, okay, payload specialist, payload specialist. What we try to do is uh, uh, tell their, their story from a very personal perspective, uh, but also kind of highlight uh, how much their contributions meant to the success of the program. Uh, ultimately, it was a successful program that went all the way up through the Columbia accident. Uh, Elon Ramon from uh, Israel was the last payload specialist that ever flew, but not not out of necessity. It was just that that was the only flight that was a research flight that was squeezed in be- between all the space station assembly missions. So once the space station assembly be- uh, began in earnest, there really wasn't a need for payload specialists uh, to go up and, and do any of that kind of work. So it ended there, but I think it would have ended anyway. Um, but I, but I think uh, I would hope that in the future now, when when these other folks go up on the commercial spacecraft, that they might look back and say, "Wow, this is the same way I got started in in, in my line of work." Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is kind of like an, an early history of what we're about to see come in the future, and I think we're we've, we're just right now in the middle of a, a brief pause in uh, the kind of work that the scientists and researchers do in orbit. Mm-hmm. Mel. Yeah, I'll share a story from one of my friends who's a tremendous space buff, and, and he attended a lot. I met him attending these space events where we talked to astronauts. He knows a lot about space. And when he found out I was, uh, well, had written the book at that time, he asked me what it was about. I said, the payload specialist. And it was, well, what is that? I said, well, you, you have to read the book, but I gave him a quick description. He said, gee, I, I just thought they were all mission specialists. So here's a very knowledgeable person of, about space travel, and he wasn't even sure. The other thing I hope people walk away with, and I wrote the Space Lab missions that there was some tremendous heavy-duty science done on Space Shuttle and Space Lab. And we try to touch on it just enough to show people that there was some really good work done that paid off. And I'm sure it's what they discovered is impacting us to this day here on Earth. Material science and so on. Uh, I'd like people to know a lot of that started with Space Lab and it's continuing on with the uh, Space Shuttle. It actually started with Sky Lab. It was continued on big time with, with Space Lab. Well, I'm going to say Space Shuttle, let me back up. It was started with Skylab, continue with Space Lab in a big way over a much longer term, and then uh, a lot of what they're doing is being continued to do on the, the uh, space station now. Um, the uh, the current, uh, the Air Force's experimental um, sort of mi- uh, uh, small, smaller size shuttle, I guess, is maybe the best way to call it. I, I'm sure you're both aware of it. it um I can't imagine, actually I can't imagine a situation where they might use military payload specialists, you know, military personnel who aren't trained, you know, who aren't specifically trained to be astronauts but need to go up to accomplish whatever mission, I don't know. Um, any, any comment on that or any anything you've come across? Well, we spoke to the guys about that and uh, the X-37B is, uh, is an automated space plane, spends hundreds of days at a time in orbit doing undisclosed work up there. They call it a technology development platform. But, you know, in reality, it's probably doing something more than that. It has the ability to change its orbit uh, and, and I think even change the plane of its orbit. So it's really unpredictable when it comes over a certain location. And I don't think you'd have that capability without, uh, having, you know, intending to fool somebody as to when it's going to be there. Hmm. So as far as what technology they're developing on there, that's uh, that remains to be seen. But uh, Gary Payton in particular pointed out that uh, currently today, you know, the, the MSC program came after fail, other failed programs like the X-20 Dinosaur and the, the MOL, the Manned Orbiting Laboratory. 
So there had been a, a multi-decade argument in the Air Force as to there being a need for uh, humans in space for a military mission. And I think the, uh, the MSEs were there as payload integrators more than they were actually performing uh, any kind of reconnaissance mission from orbit using the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. They to do some things later on that would, that would exa- examine that, but uh, once they ended that program, to this day, they haven't really found another mission for, uh, for a man in space. And uh, today, with technology advances and the robotics advances, uh, it's probably less likely that they're going to find a mission uh, for a, a person to perform in space that, that a robot couldn't do. Now, now that could change. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on the, the requirements come down the road, who knows what kind of uh, threats they're going to have to deal with uh, in space uh, down the road, but for now, there's just not a need for a for a military uh, mission up there. And I don't think any of us know what this uh, new is it Space Force is that what it's called that the president is touting now. Who yeah. knows what that's going to look like? Mm. But you never know. Yeah, it could be very interesting. Um, can you speak to? Can either of you speak to any difficulties you had in getting the book finished and published, and how you overcame them? <laughs> Word count forty five thousand words. <laughs> yeah, that was the most difficult part, John. It turns out we're very wordy writers. Uh, <laughs> it was to tell, and it was it was a difficult decision to, to limit it to uh, just those first couple of years of the shuttle operations. If you if we would have done this, uh, you know, throughout the whole thirty year history of the mission, and tried to cover all the payload specialists, it would have been a very impersonal story. It would have been a uh, kind of a chronological. This guy flew here, this guy flew there, they did this and this, and it would have been a very rushed story. So we made that decision early on to limit it just to those uh, up to the Challenger accident and then just highlight a few uh, notable missions after that, like John Glenn's uh, flight uh, on uh, STS-95. But, uh, yeah, the, the toughest part was uh, just trying to contain it all within the space that we had. Our contract was for 100,000 words. So we finished at 185,000, mm-hmm. and somewhere they let us stop at about 140-plus. Uh, said that's it, guys. <laughs> well, you gave them more than uh, th- than they asked yeah. for, right? Isn't that a bonus? That's why we saw it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned uh, the, the Twitter account. Where can people find um, both of you online, uh, websites, social media, whatnot? Well, we're both regulars on that CollectSpace website. Like I said, uh, Robert Perlman uh, manages that. I've been on there for probably 20 years. Mm-hmm. So we, we have a thread going on there. You can you can follow us there. And then we have the Twitter account. That's uh, Come Fly With Us Book. At, at Come Fly With Us Book. And the, but the, uh, the Come Fly With Us, it's shortened to C-M-F-L-Y-W-I-T-H-B-O-O-K. U-S-B-O-O-K. And we sent you the link for that. You can post that up when you post the story. And that's where we have a lot of photos from our... Uh, research and we've got all the cutting room floor material and, and we do a lot of uh, other stories about the payload specialists that we couldn't fit into the book. It's been uh, uh, we got a, a good number of followers now. And we'd be happy to have some more. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, well, that's all the questions I have. Do you do you guys have any uh, final thoughts or words? I always have thoughts. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I think it was a tremendously tremendously successful program. Um, you know, some of the NASA astronauts were very skeptical of it early on, and, and but I think most of them came around. But you look at what we did. We did a tremendous amount of science. We did some great military work, some of which I don't think we still know the results of. Hmm. Um, and we did a lot of uh, international goodwill, I think, with some of our foreign partners to get them up and, and build some uh, connections there. So I think it was just a tremendously successful program, and I'd like to see it something similar to continue in the future. John? Yeah, I agree. It's a great, great program. Probably one of the unsung programs, uh, uh, issues they do with the shuttle. And it was a real honor to write about it. It was an honor to talk to these uh, uh, men and women that were part of it. And uh, we hope that they appreciate uh, their story being out there as uh, much as we enjoyed writing it. All right. Well, thanks again for speaking with me. Uh, Chris, thanks for, inv- for the invitation. It's uh, fun to uh, talk about this stuff. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. 
One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.